Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. You're listening to the New Books Network, and this is the Drugs Addiction Recovery Podcast. My name is Lucas Rickard, and welcome, everyone. We're discussing psychedelics today. Let me introduce you to Matthew Oram. Dr. Matthew Oram is a trained historian who has awarded his PhD from the University of Sydney, although he's joining us from New Zealand this afternoon, where it happens to be tomorrow morning, actually. More recently, Matt was an Associated Medical Services Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Calgary in Canada. Matt's an expert in the history of psychedelics and drug regulation, and he's here today to talk about his new book called The Trials of Psychedelic Therapy, LSD Psychotherapy in America, which is published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Matt, it's great to have you here. I'm thrilled to talk to you about your book today. Hi, Luke. Thanks a lot for having me here. I'm looking forward to chatting. So just to get us started, I suppose, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, more broadly, I suppose, what got you interested in the history of LSD? Yeah, so, so as you said, I, I'm from New Zealand, but um, was doing my, my study in Australia and um, I'd done uh, most of my undergraduate research uh, not in anywhere kind of near this field. Um, I'd done my, my honours thesis on uh, in Holocaust history. Um, but I was looking from where to go from there, and, and um, I, I really needed language skills if I wanted to continue down the kind of German history path. But I've been doing some casual reading around psychedelics. The drugs had always um, kind of interested me in the in the power that they have and the perceptual changes that they could produce. And I'd always been kind of fascinated by these mysterious drugs. And I started reading um, a little bit about, they just talked about um, the... Uh, the medical research with them, which had been done in the in the 1950s and 60s, and the kind of amazing results that that a lot of these researchers brought up, and and the apparent safety of the drug that kind of when used under uh, uh, in a medical context, uh, the drug was not addictive, um, LSD was considered kind of completely non toxic, um, and that it was really considered kind of by by many researchers to be um, a really promising, um, safe and effective treatment. Um, but then I was also looking at the the way that the drug was regulated and under the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, which is um, still the the regulatory framework for uh, for illicit drugs, for controlled drugs. It was listed under Schedule One, which is the most uh, restrictive schedule, uh, which includes other drugs like heroin um, and also um, cannabis. And and the criteria for that schedule were that the drug has a high potential for abuse that it uh, has no accepted uh, medical use in the United States and that there's a lack of accepted safety under medical um, conditions. And this seemed to contrast really significantly with what I was reading in the, in the medical literature. And so that was kind of my entry point was that I was looking at, well, how did it come to be regulated in this way? And, and a lot of other researchers and commentators also kind of look at the Schedule 1 and see uh, there's other drugs other than heroin, LSD and, and, and marijuana in Schedule One, but the, these are three very different, very distinct um, kind of drugs, 
that can cause a lot of confusion, kind of, you know, from ones that are uh, clearly very dangerous, like like heroin, to to cannabis, which, you know, considered by many people to be kind of a, a, a softer drug, as they're described, um, and to drugs like LSD, which are undoubtedly very powerful, um, but, but which don't have the same kind of um, toxic or addictive um, kind of dangers associated with them. And, and so from there, uh, I launched into a, into a PhD project. Um, as you said, this was in Australia. And then that really um, got me fascinated into um, kind of going back through uh, the way that the drugs were regulated. And so my project, um, so my book started as my, as my doctoral dissertation, um, and it really got involved with looking very closely at the regulation of, of pharmaceuticals um, in America and taking it really um, from that angle. And so that has kind of occupied me for kind of the 10 years up to the publication of this uh, last year. It's a really timely topic. I mean, you really hit on something that's uh, on the, the tip of everyone's tongues, uh, whether or not it's uh, articles in The New Yorker or The Atlantic or this new book um, by Michael Pollan. Uh, psychedelics are, are generating a lot of conversation these days and I know we're both trained historians but I thought we'd start in the present maybe and work backwards a little bit yeah, yeah. And, and so I mean people have called this 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 moment um, a psychedelic renaissance if you will and so I, I suppose it, can you tell us a little bit of, about the, the present uh, and I suppose how your book which is obviously a work of, of history uh, adds to this contemporary story of LSD? Yeah, so um, to first to say I was completely unaware that um, this kind of psychedelic renaissance was beginning um, when I started this project in 2008. And it was um, kind of, it, it had been brewing for for kind of 10 or 15 years before that. Um, but but at that moment, it was, it was really starting to, um, just the first reports were starting to get published from new research. Um, but, but I thought I was doing a, a really obscure topic that was, that was purely historical, um, and not a lot had been published either, um, on the history. Uh, my first year, uh, a great history by Erica Dick came out focusing on the, um, history of psychedelic research in Canada. And there was a bunch of other kind of loose articles, but not a lot, a lot on it. Um, but as I continued um, studying, and particularly when I got near the end of this project, more and more cl new clinical research started getting published. So uh, they, these were mostly kind of um, organized by two groups, uh, one called MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which began in the mid-80s and is really focused on uh, uh, MDMA uh, and the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. MDMA um, considered a psychedelic by many, but a bit different from what might be called the classic psychedelics like LSD, uh, psilocybin, which is uh, magic mushrooms, the active ingredient in that, uh, mescaline, uh, the active ingredient in a number of cacti like um, peyote cactus. Uh, other psychedelics like DMT uh, as well, considered classical psychedelics. Um, and they started to get yeah their research, a long time spent working with the FDA um, on getting approval to do these things on designing trial desi um, designs, um, getting the drugs manufactured. And the research started getting uh, really underway kind of in, in the mid-2000s and then actual results starting to come out in multiple trials um, in the last kind of decade. Uh, another um, 
group, which is even more relevant to my research, the Hefter Research Institute. Uh, it started uh, again in the, the kind of late 80s, early 90s, um, and their first um, you know, clinical trials really getting underway in the, the mid-2000s. That was started by a, um, a group led by a pharmacologist, um, David Nichols, uh, from Purdue University, who was a, a specialist in, uh, in, in the pharmacology and the chemistry of psychedelics. Um, and, and, and they have uh, sponsored research at uh, Johns Hopkins University, which has been one of the major centers. They focused on psilocybin, so a very similar drug to LSD, but with a slightly um, shorter period of effect. Um, and studies at Johns Hopkins University, led by Roland Griffiths and uh, William Richards, and at New York University and a number of other studies. And those studies have really followed on almost exactly from the studies in the 60s and 70s. Oh, and in really? fact, yeah, William Richards, who, who co-founded the Johns Hopkins studies, he was involved in the main research team um, that I write about. Um, he joined that in 1967 and was there from 90, uh, to 1976. So a lot of the current researchers have um, kind of talk about this big break between the eras, but there's actually, um, and, and I write about this in my book, um, there's, there's a real direct line between them. Some of the same people were involved, the same research was dropped uh, in, the, in the 70s and picked straight back up or, or sometimes replicated uh, in more recent decades. But research has been progressing and, and more and more studies um, have been done, a lot of them focusing a lot of the psilocybin studies on treating um, anxiety and distress associated with uh, cancer diagnosis, um, also on um, uh, on addiction, so on alcohol dependence, which was a major research focus in the in the fifties and sixties uh, on on smoking cessation. Uh, there's new studies coming out um, of Britain as well. In Britain as well, uh, there's another uh, a research. Um, group there called the Beckley Foundation, which is sponsoring research um, into depression. Um, so th there's there's an enormous amount of research which has been published um, in this decade, really, uh, and which is all getting um, very uh, promising results and is moving through the FDA pro uh, process um, toward, towards getting approval as a new drug, which we'll see if, if that happens, but it, but it is progressing. Uh, through the stages that the FDA requires. And so it's a really interesting kind of um, time to be a historian because, as I said, kind of as I, when I started this, I had no idea that this was going to become a really kind of topical issue. And, you know, as historians, we're sometimes a bit slower kind of writing our work than journalists are and stuff. Sure. <laughs> and, and kind of near the end of it, I'm like, wow, I need to, you know, this is this history that I'm writing about is unfolding again, and and and, and what does this mean? And 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 that's that's difficult. And and as I wrote the book, I, I put a lot of attention into writing an, an epilogue at the end, because uh, my story kind of uh, finishes really in kind of 1976, but then an epilogue which takes it through from 1976 through the 1980s, as um, as other groups who weren't as successful, a group called the Arenda Institute. Um, tried really hard in the 80s and 90s to get LSD research back up and running, uh, but ultimately weren't unable to. But then these other groups, MAPS, have to um, kind of manage to do so. Um, but I think that that there is, um, you know, great significance for, for for studying the history of these drugs for their potential future. And it's it's an area where, where often simple explanations have been given 
for why um, psychedelics kind of failed to to become accepted medicine uh, in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, and those um, kind of simple explanations are often, you know, repeated um, by current researchers, by current commentators and other historians. And, um, and, and those simple explanations give simple lessons of, you know, how to avoid the pitfalls of the past. And uh, in my book, I've, I've tried to nuance that and challenge a lot of the kind of um, assumptions or a lot of the simple explanations. And, uh, and I hope that that provides um, kind of more lessons for the future um, for, for pitfalls that may be avoided um, better and, and lessons to learn. Well, cool. Let's get into it. Uh, that's really exciting. Uh, I mean, you suggest that LSD uh, failed to live up to its promise uh, in the 60s and the 70s of entering, and I suppose you put it, revolutionizing mainstream psychiatry. That's, that's a fascinating claim. And you have to nuance other researchers and how, and, and how they've, uh, how they've uh, dealt with um, the relationship between uh, mental medicine and these fantastic new drugs. So when you say that um, LSD um, didn't live up to this promise, um, can, can you just unpack this a bit for, for listeners? Yeah, so, so LSD emerged um, on the scene kind of at the start of the 1950s. So it arrived in, um, it was first discovered in the chemical by Albert Hoffman in Switzerland in 1938. Uh, in 1943, he accidentally first ingested the substance. Uh, it took a kind of a slow process um, to get to, to uh, widespread research. 1947, I believe the first um, study was uh published in, in Switzerland. Uh, Albert Hoffman worked for Sandoz Pharmaceuticals, a major pharmaceutical company uh, in Switzerland. And the drug arrived in the United States in 1949 and, and research really got underway in the 1950s. And the 1950s was a, a really crucial kind of era for uh, the history of psychiatry and the history of, of drug treatment in psychiatry, of psychopharmacology. Um, this was the era when um, the first, what we call antipsychotic drugs, uh, were discovered, uh, Thorazine, Rezepine, um, drugs they were called tranquilizers or neuroleptics at the time, we call them antipsychotics now. Um, so the first effective drugs were treating schizophrenia and psychosis. Um, the first um, kind of major antidepressants of um, uh, what's called the tricyclic class or the MAOI class. Uh, the first, uh, what we now call um, anxiolytics or anti-anxiety drugs like um, uh, Milltown or uh, Valium, Diazepam. And so this was kind of when uh, we now have more modern drugs than some of these, but this is the, the period which really kind of created the framework for, um, for modern drug treatment and psychiatry. So the major drug classes of antipsychotics, antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs kind of um, had their roots in the 1950s. And this was the same time that, that LSD um, came on the scene. And it seemed at the time that this was you know, alongside these drugs that this was going to be, you know, a, a critical kind of revolutionary um, treatment in psychiatry. And it fascinated psychiatrists from all different kinds of backgrounds. So um, there were some initially who called the drug a, a psychotomimetic or a madness mimicking drug, and they thought it produced an artificial psychosis. And there was a lot of debate whether uh, mental illness was, was based in biology in the brain or whether it was based in psychology in the mind. Sure. And 
And this, if, if LSD could produce a psychosis, then this suggested that psychosis was indeed uh, kind of of a neurochemical um, basis. And, and Thorazine, the first antipsychotic, blocked the effects of LSD. So some thought that you could create and cure um, schizophrenia in an afternoon, kind of in the laboratory, and that this would <laughs> unlock the keys of, uh, of, of psychosis, which um, didn't quite happen, unfortunately. Um, others of a, of a psychoanalytic persuasion thought that LSD kind of um, loosened up the unconscious mind, and they called it a, a psycholytic, and they used it in their in their psychoanalytic practice to break through patients' offenses, um, kind of unleash their, their unconscious mind, um, and to basically quicken um, and deepen the process of, of their traditional um, psychoanalytic procedures. Um, other psychiatrists, um, starting with uh, in Canada and Saskatchewan with um, research teams um, led by psychiatrists Humphrey Osmond and, and Abraham Hoffer, and also researchers in British Columbia, um, led by uh, Al Hubbard and Ross McLean, um, developed this, this procedure where they called psychedelic therapy, where they used a very large dose. Um, psycholytic therapy, psycholytic therapists had used a, a smaller dose okay. um, in many sessions, but psychedelic therapy used one um, very large dose, um, but in the context of, of brief but intensive psychotherapy and in a very supportive setting um, to produce a, a kind of a transcendental uh, mystical experience, uh, and this was particularly for, for alcoholics, that gave them a whole new um, perspective on their life that allowed them to see their patterns of behavior, how it affected the people around them, and um, to see who they wanted to be and what they wanted out of life. Um, if they were religious, it often had uh, a very religious uh, nature to it of being at one with God and, and, and conversing with God. If they were not religious, it, it was often an experience of being at one with the universe or at one with humanity. And it often resulted in a greater um, sense of connection. Um, a lot of the researchers believed that um, that alcoholism had its roots in, in alienation and that this experience brought people closer um, to their families, to the young ones, that it brought them back into the kind of fold of humanity um, even and mm -hmm. so it was it was this transformative experience but but only one one dose so it was a very unusual um, uh, unusual kind of treatment method um, but it but it produced astounding results and there was consistently reported about a 50 percent kind of success rate um, in long-term abstinence in, in treating uh, what were often the most kind of chronic treatment resistant um, hospitalized alcoholic patients and and this yeah they were incredible results and this was um you know yeah this promised to be to be a revolution in psychiatry if these kind of results could be uh could be maintained uh no when i say um as you say that it failed to live up to its promise in that um i'm not necessarily saying that it, that it failed to live up to its clinical process but that that it never um, entered mainstream psychiatry in that way, that research continued um, for a period over the 1960s and into the 1970s, but uh, ultimately it was diminishing uh, and, and it ended, um, at least for a few decades. Um, and and that the mainstream psychiatry kind of went in a different direction um, away from these kind of treatment forms which blended the use of both drugs and psychotherapy to, to psychotherapy and, um, and and drug treatment and psychiatry being quite distinct practices. Um, so so the drug 
in that sense, I mean that um, it failed to uh, become an approved tool of psychiatry to gain FDA approval. Uh, yeah. It's really fascinating stuff. I, and, but I have to go back to some of your earlier thoughts. Um, when you were talking about some of the arguments that have been put forward about um, psychedelics in American society and in the regulatory process, you said you tried to nuance uh, some of the existing arguments. Uh, so can you tell us a bit more about how you do that in the book? Yeah, so the, the, a very common um, explanation for the end of psychedelic research and for why LSD never became an approved tool uh, is because of the kind of uproar around the drugs in the mid-1960s. So in the 1950s, um, there was widespread medical research with the drug. But from the kind of early 1960s and then particularly in the mid to late 1960s, uh, as many people know, it became a very controversial drug associated with the kind of youth counterculture movement, the hippies. It became kind of um, the controversial drug and, 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 and it was prohibited. Um, so the drug was progressively banned from 1965 from uh, a law called the Drug Abuse Control Amendments of 1965. Um, that's when it was first criminalized um, broadly. Um, personal possession was criminalized federally in 1968. Uh, in 1970, the Controlled Substances Act uh, was passed and, and put it in Schedule 1, which is the status that it remains in today. Um, other states um, started banning it more strictly in terms of personal possession in, in around 1966. California, New York uh, were in 1966. And in 1966, there were yet three congressional hearings which focused on the drug. Um, these were televised. They were hugely um, kind of controversial. M many people may have heard of uh, Timothy Leary, uh, a Harvard psychologist who started doing psychedelic research in the 1960s. Uh, him and his colleague Richard Alpert uh, were fired from the university in 1963 amid, uh, uh, amid big uproar, and they became the kind of biggest evangelists for the drug, who drugs who um, you know encouraged uh, the populace to, to tune in, turn on, and drop out, um, and 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 really kind of advocated for a, a revolution in consciousness. Uh, now, there was a huge kind of media and, and public kind of um, backlash to the drugs. And, and, and as I've said, the drugs were prohibited. And, and mostly the death of, um, of, of medical research has been blamed on this controversy and on the prohibition of the drugs. So intentionally or unintentionally, the government backlash against the non-medical use of LSD curdled the medical use of LSD. And this is where I started off in my research very much believing this. And I, I was going back and I thought that the, the US Food and Drug Administration, uh, which of course uh, regulates the research of, of, of drugs, of the medical use of drugs, uh, was going to kind of be the adversary and, and that they would be clamping things down. And, and I was just looking to more closely document this process uh, and to really show, because I was reading a lot of things which said uh, kind of research died at this point and, and these laws were passed at this point, but they weren't really showing how the law banned the research and, and then I started to see that that some of the research was actually continuing beyond these points so um, you I, I heard a lot of uh, you know current researchers and, and even some historians say research ended in 1966 or research ended in 1969 or ended in 1970 or these kind of dates that were very black and white but doing basic literature reviews of, of, of um, psychedelic research I was seeing papers coming out in you know, 1969 and 1970 and 1972 and 1976. And so, so this simply, you know, wasn't quite adding up. 
And the more I looked into the, this regulation, the more I couldn't actually see how these laws banned research. They generally all actually had, um, you know, exclusions for legitimate research um, and, and clear paths um, through which uh, you could get research approved. And research clearly was getting approved. Um, so I, I looked further and further back and, and started focusing less on um, the regulations that prohibited drugs and more on the regulations um, that controlled um, pharmaceutical research and development um, on, on how you get approval to, to conduct research with a drug in the United States and how um, you develop a drug to um, licensed approval, how you get it on the market. And um, this focused around so a different framework uh, called the um, Food, Drugs and Cosmetic Act, uh, originally passed in 1938, um, and a very significant amendment to that in 1962 um, called the, uh, unimaginably, the, the Drug Amendments of 1962. <laughs> 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 or, or sometimes the Kefova Harris Amendments. Uh, and, and so in order to get a drug um, approved to market, you need to submit to the FDA uh, what's called a, a new drug application or an NDA. Uh, now prior to 1962, an NDA had to uh, provide proof that the drug was effective when, uh, sorry, proof that the drug was safe uh, when used as directed. Uh, and there was no uh, regulation of of pre, well, very little regulation of pre-market clinical research. So a, a pharmaceutical house like, like Sandoz could directly go to a researcher and say, hey, we've got this new drug LSD, uh, looks really interesting, you might want to check it out. Here's a sample of it. And then those researchers could immediately go um, and try it out with some of their patients and write up a, a report. Now, there's a lot of downsides to this, and this is why um, you know, it changed, because um, you know, there's not a lot of ethical control over research, um, how are researchers, um, you know, are they ethically giving, uh, conducting their research, you know, what are the patient's rights, a lot of issues there. But it allowed a lot of freedom uh, for some researchers and allowed the research process to be very quick and responsive and allowed researchers to explore uh, a lot of different channels uh, of, of potential. Um, but in 1962, in, in, in response particularly to the thalidomide tragedy, um, so thalidomide was a, a sedative uh, which was uh, recommended for um, treating uh, morning sickness in, in early pregnancy, uh, but proved to be um, teratogenic. It caused um, uh, very significant deformities um, in, in children uh, who were born, and, 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 and many died um, in utero, and it was a huge tragedy across the world. Now, the drug was never actually approved um, for use in the United States, but because there was this um, uh, lax regulation of pre-market use, a lot of people ended up taking it. And so part of the 1962 amendments was the introduction of FDA oversight of, of pre-market clinical research. So in order to do research with a drug, you now had to approach the FDA and say, you know, this is what I want to do. This is the justifications for doing it. This is how we're going to do it. And this is how it's going to work towards um, a, a, an approved new drug application. Mm -hmm. uh, so it directed research towards um, being less exploratory and 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 more towards um, 
conducting research to meet the demands of, of a new drug application to produce uh, a commercial product that will be approved by the FDA in treating an illness. Um, it also then introduced the, the requirement um, to provide proof of drug effectiveness as well as, safe, as safety in order to get the drug approved to market. So introducing uh, FDA oversight of research and then um, providing proof of drug effect effectiveness for approval were the two kind of key uh, features uh, of this law. And this law had nothing to do with LSD, but it had um, enormous kind of impact on uh, LSD research after it. And chapter four for me was one of the more interesting chapters. I mean, you, you've already said that you're nuancing the existing literature because the research doesn't stop. The research just fundamentally doesn't stop when historians said they did, or when historians suggested that it, it had. And so in chapter four, which you call Against the Tide, uh, you, I guess, do a deep dive into the Spring Grove State Hospital. And you, you, you unpack some of this important research that happens after uh, 1970. So, I mean, can you just shed some light on some of the sort of interesting characters and some of the experiments that were going on? Yeah, so the, um, the research program at Spring Grove State Hospital started in 1963 and went through um, uninterrupted until 1976 and was really, I think, the, the largest, um, the most sophisticated and the most successful psychedelic research program um, ever undertaken in this period, definitely, and, and probably still. Um, and it attracted a lot of the best um, kind of talent, a lot of researchers who had done work uh, in, in other locations to it. And it conducted a number of very sophisticated clinical trials. And so I call it against the tide because it started in this year, 1963, when the drug abuse, uh, the drug amendments of 1962 came into effect. And, and, and what those amendments did in shaping research and in requiring a, a, um, a, what was called an IND, which was why you had to submit to the FDA in order to, to conduct clinical research with the drug, that restricted the number of researchers um, who were doing it. Not intentionally, but it kind of organized, uh, it formalized the process of getting approval and it required kind of approval under a, a research sponsor, which was usually the pharmaceutical company. Um, so on, on the surface, it appeared like um, fewer researchers were doing research after 1963, but it actually meant that a lot of the research programs, instead of kind of individual researchers all kind of following their own curiosity, research was organized more into larger scale clinical trials, um, but a fewer number of them, but more significant trials, which actually had the potential of meeting FDA demands and providing proof of safety and effectiveness that could be used to um, have the drug approved. Uh, 1963 was also um, the year that Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert were fired from Harvard and the LSD first became kind of controversial. So a lot of people were kind of seeing this as the beginning of the end of LSD, LS, LSD research is when uh, on the surface, um, fewer studies um, seemed to be, uh, research seemed to be restricting and the drug started to become quite controversial. But this is the, the year that this project was launched. And, and it just grew and grew and grew over the 1960s. And so it was founded by a psychiatrist um, named Albert Kurland um, and a psychologist named Sam Fadunga. Um, and Kurland was the director of research at Spring Grove um, State Hospital. Uh, and he'd been very involved in, um, in, in, in psychiatric research 
for over the 1950s and was involved in some of the early studies with some of the early antipsychotic drugs and he was a well-respected uh, figure in psychiatric research and uh, he was they, they had a lot of a huge number of alcoholics on the wards and he had a he had a problem and he was trying to uh, research ways to new ways um, to treat these patients and he'd been reading with a lot of interest um, some of the results that were, that were coming out of Canada saying that LSD could be a therapeutic. Uh, Sam Fidunga at the time was a, a fairly young psychologist, um, Cornell educated psychologist at the National Institute of Mental Health. And he had also been um, uh, doing a lot of reading a lot about the, the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. And he had done a really big literature review, which looked at all of the studies which had then been published. And he saw that there was a lot of potential there, but there, there needed to be more um, clearly coordinated studies, more sophisticated controlled studies. And um, he decided um, to leave the NIMH uh, in order to uh, and, and, and um, join up with Albert Kurland in order to to try and um, really figure out do some do some sophisticated studies in order to um, determine the effectiveness of these drugs. And so over this period, and and this is what you get a lot of um, as well, is um, people looking back on the history of the period of this. Uh, of LSD psychotherapy and the question of whether or not it was effective because the question of whether or not it was effective is the question which looms over this whole period and the question which still looms today. You know, is it is it effective or not? And people looking back on the research from today generally fall into two camps. Uh, if they're kind of critics of psychedelics, they say, well, most of the research that was done uh, in the 1950s and 60s was anecdotal. It was not scientifically sophisticated. There were no control groups. Uh, they were really kind of um, enthusiastic researchers. Um, and later studies kind of disproved them, and you can't really read much into the studies that were, the, those initial studies that reported great results. Or they are a camp which th says, well, um, the, the initial studies were really promising, um, but research was kind of cut off prematurely by the prohibition of the drug. So it never reached that kind of scientific maturity. Now, after the drug amendments of 1962, clinical trials, um, in order to provide proof of effectiveness, had to be um, randomized, controlled clinical trials, usually double-blind studies, which compared the effectiveness um, of the drug against a control group who were usually given uh, a placebo treatment. Um, and so this was to, to minimize bias in evaluating the effectiveness of the treatment. And this is what Kerlin and, uh, and Sanford Unger really wanted to do was to put put LSD to the to the to, to the controlled trial test and really to settle the question of its effectiveness. Um, and so they first launched a controlled trial of um, of psychedelic therapy, the same method that had been developed in Canada by um, Humphrey Osmond and Abraham Hoffer uh, and and others. Mm -hmm. And they launched a controlled trial um, of, of alcoholism first. Uh, they then collected some other researchers along the way. So um, one of the most significant ones to join them first was Charles Savage. And, and Savage's name um, is, is not very well known. I don't think it, it hadn't been written about before, but he's actually uh, one of the most significant LSD researchers, uh, I think, in the drug's history. Um, he first started researching psychedelics in 1949 and had a pretty much uninterrupted career uh, with the drugs until... Uh, the early 70s. So he had kind of an almost a 25-year career uh, researching psychedelics. Um, he started off um, researching them uh, in the uh, in the naval uh, medical research branch, 
um, and then moved to the National Institute of Mental Health. He was then involved with a group called the International Foundation for Advanced Study um, in, in California, which kind of um, some other well-known names like Myron Solaroff and um, Jim Fadiman, who uh, is still a, a very um, well-known and vocal uh, psychedelic researcher and, and writer and advocate. Um, they did some really valuable research in the, in the late 50s and early 60s uh, in California. And, and, and they, them and another group in California were, were those who really brought the psychedelic therapy um, treatment form down from Canada into the United States. And then they kind of savaged, brought it over uh, and moved over to, um, to Maryland. Uh, later in the decade, um, Walter Pankey joined was a, a psychiatrist, Harvard-educated uh, psychiatrist, who also did his, his PhD in religion and did a very famous experiment called uh, the Good Friday Experiment, where he um, got a bunch of theology students uh, in a special um, Good Friday Mass um, and gave uh, half of them uh, psilocybin, so that's magic mushrooms, and, and half of them a placebo uh, in a double-blind fashion um, and, and had them uh, described their experiences and, and, and he had a, a lot of methods for doing this fairly objectively um, and found that, um, you know, that those that were given psilocybin had a, um, a deep kind of mystical experience compared to those um, and, and a mystical experience that, which was um, effectively um, indistinguishable from, um, from those religious mystical experience, spontaneous ones um, described by kind of history's mystics. Um, and so he joined the, the team in, in 1967. Um, so did Stanislav Grof, um, who was um, kind of one of uh, a Czechoslovakian psychiatrist who was one of Europe's most experienced and, and, and well-known researchers. He's uh, published a lot of books on, uh, on his research and as well as, as still a, a quite a well-known name. Um, William Richards as well um, was a close colleague of, of Walter Pankey's, who I've said he's kind of the most uh, clear personal link between the past era and the and the new era, um, and so they, these were all um, highly guarded researchers from from fairly kind of um, orthodox, often Ivy League backgrounds, who had good relationships with federal regulators, um, with funding bodies like the National Institute of Mental Health, and who were doing you know um, very sophisticated research. And they um, they started off uh, with the study of alcoholics. Um, but they moved into to four clinical research areas, which was um, treating alcoholics, those which uh, with uh, psychoneuroses, um, the term used at the time, which was a fairly broad term, which kind of encompassed a lot of uh, what we'd now call anxiety disorders and kind of um, depressive disorders, particularly of the kind of milder forms. Um, then they, um, anxiety and depression associated with a terminal cancer diagnosis, uh, and so that's one of the um, treatment indications which has been picked up most significantly in the last couple of decades. That that more recent research really just um, picks up straight where they left off in the 1970s. And then also treating um, narcotic heroin um, addicts um, with the same psychedelic treatment format. Um, and so they had the, these four kind of main clinical areas and they were planning or and or conducted um, you know, sophisticated controlled clinical trials and all of these research methods and uh, all of these research areas. It's a fascinating project, uh, really nuanced too. Um, as you wrap the book up, you um, uh, 
you you title um, uh, chapter six the quiet death of research really evocative uh, chapter title so can you uh, tell us about the gradual end of this research phase yeah so I mean the main um, the Spring Grove researchers were the largest group but they were far from the only group um, still doing sophisticated um, controlled uh, research in the 1960s um, and and the most of the the research focus and my focus of my book is around the treatment of uh, chronic alcoholism. These were the big claims that were made in the 1950s that there was a 50% success rate. This was a really major, really important clinical indication. Um, and this was the the uh, the area which really needed to have um, some clear, sophisticated research to really settle the question of is the drug effective in this area. Uh, and in between the late 60s and the early 70s, there were actually um, seven controlled trials of LSD in the treatment of chronic alcoholism, um, which wrapped up in the United States. And these were mostly conducted out of um, state hospitals and veterans administration hospitals. Um, and so, so effectively, this question of is it effective should have been wrapped up in this period between kind of 1969 and 1971 when all of these drugs conclude uh, when all of these trials concluded but there was a lot of complexity in these trials um, and and the way that pharmaceutical research and development was kind of moving the 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 methodology for research um, around these um, randomized double-blind controlled trials um, meant that researchers really focused on, well, if we want FDA approval or if we want to settle the question of the drug efficacy, we have to have these really rigorous um, studies. Now, it's really actually very difficult um, to study LSD therapy under these conditions. As you can imagine, if you give um, one group of um, patients LSD and one group of patients a, a placebo like a sugar pill, it's, it's very obvious within half an hour or so who got LSD and, and, and who got um, the placebo. Yeah, um, it's also more complicated, and that the, these kind of studies are are meant to kind of separate uh, what is the kind of true effects of the drugs, what are the effective drugs uh, effects of the drugs from um, the kind of placebo effect, which can be um, you know the hope and the expectation and the the, the doctor patient relationship and a lot of what are called kind of non-specific um, factors around the drug, but. LSD psychotherapy and psychedelic therapy was never a simple drug treatment. It was a it was a drug treatment enmeshed in a framework of of psychotherapy. So mm -hmm. the Spring Grove researchers, um, who most um, uh, you know carefully um, designed their their treatment method and, and maintained the treatment methods which had been initially developed in Canada, they would go through about twenty hours of psychotherapy with the patient before they ever received the drug. Um, then they would have a, a 10 to 12 hour um, session with the patient while they're under the influence of the drug, which was done in a very comfortable kind of room that was made up with art and a comfortable sofa. Um, and, and, um, and they would spend a lot of the time reclining with eye shades on, listening to a carefully curated um, collection of, of, of music, um, soundtrack of music. And they would be accompanied by, by two therapists um, for the entirety of it. And the job of these people and all of this kind of um, set, what they call set and setting, was to help um, to direct the experience to produce this kind of transcendental mystical reaction that we talked about, which allowed people to kind of um, reassess the experiences in their lives. But 
it was really LSD doesn't just you know, produce this experience by itself. The context, the psychotherapy, the way that the drug is delivered uh, is really critical. Um, is what a lot of the research has believed to the success and to the outcome of the treatment. But when a lot of researchers focused on, okay, well, what we need is these, these kind of objective randomized controlled trials is that they focused on how they designed um, the blinding in their trials, how they designed um, the kind of these um, technical elements of it, but they completely ignored the actual kind of therapeutic context that they were doing. And a lot of them just administered the drug um, without any psychotherapy or with very minimal psychotherapy um, and without the kind of supportive directance and guidance that the therapist gave in the original studies. And most of these studies, um, in a way, and unsurprisingly, produced negative results. Um, and, and, and that wasn't a surprise to the people who had been doing the studies since the 50s who had developed these, um, these treatment methods because they were studying in completely different treatment. You know, it was a, just giving LSD to a patient um, and then seeing what happened was a completely different treatment um, to giving it in the context of, of all the psycho uh, psychotherapy and um, supportive guidance and the whole framework that was designed which created this treatment called psychedelic therapy. But that wasn't necessarily seen and appreciated by the wider psychiatric community and by the regulatory community. Um, so what happened was that um, by the 1970s, in the early 1970s, you had basically six um, trials that on the surfaces of them appeared to be fairly sophisticated controlled trials, which showed that LSD was uh, not effective. And then you had the one study from Springo, which had some positive results, but they were slightly underwhelming results. And the reason for that was because it was so difficult to design a, uh, a control condition which could allow you to do uh, a controlled trial, um, but still allow you to use the methods that they had. So what they did is that they compared a low dose to a high dose of LSD with the same therapeutic framework. And um, what they thought was that you needed a high dose of LSD to produce the mystical reaction, the transcendental experience, which would have lasting effects on alcoholics. And that the low dose um, would mean that um, there was no question that the, that the patient got LSD, um, but that it shouldn't produce the same results. And what they found was that the that they were getting around the 50% success rate that they were expecting with the high dose, but actually that the low dose was more effective than they realized. And so that kind of made the, the, the treatment appear less effective when you're talking about the statistical significance of it. Because when you're looking at these studies, they're not actually looking whether the study is recording good results or not. It's not how many people um, uh, you know, improved or the percentage of people improved, but whether there is a statistically significant difference between the experimental group and the control group. And that narrowed um, that difference between uh, the, the control group. And the control group was still getting something like 35% treatment success, which compared to about 12% treatment success for their standard kind of hospital procedure, um, which didn't involve LSD. But on the surface, these results appeared kind of underwhelming. Um, and so, so to a lot in the medical of people in the medical establishment, these results that came out in the 1970s basically seemed to answer the question, and the answer was, well, the drug hasn't lived up to its promise, the drug isn't effective. But, and I go into um, a lot of detail into the book, into looking into these studies, and into the design of them, and the design of the treatments that, that they delivered, and how this likely influenced the results that they were actually getting out of them. So I believe that the results of these trials are, are quite misleading, because 
they weren't actually testing the hypothesis that was kind of delivered by the original research, that a specific treatment form would be effective um, in alcoholics. But that still didn't completely end it. So um, research was still not banned. In 1975, um, the FDA still listed five research programs which were approved to use LSD in, in, in human trials. Um, whether or not they were doing that is, is a more difficult question, and it seems like about four out of five of them weren't actually doing active research. But the Spring Grove research team continued um, through the 1970s. The major difficulty was um, getting funding because uh, the National Institute of Mental Health kind of um, uh, you know, stopped funding projects because the results of studies had, had, had not been promising. Um, but they managed to scrape together funding and continue their research. Uh, but, but research was very much dying out. The eventual death in 1976 at Spring Grove was actually then a result of a very mundane um, HR um, uh, spat in which Albert Kurland, um, he was by then in a, um, the, the superintendent of a, of a research uh, unit called the um, Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, which was um, attached to uh, uh, Spring Grove State Hospital. And he had he, uh, as well as being the director of research for Spring Grove State Hospital, was the director of research for the Maryland State Department of Mental Hygiene. And he had basically built this research centre, and it was a, it, it's still a very significant research centre. And he had built it and designed it, you know, specifically to, to do more psychedelic research, but also some other, also other more broader psychiatric research. And uh, a few of the researchers who weren't involved in the psychedelic research um, got into... Uh, uh, a spat with with Kerland, who was maybe a bit of a uh, kind of a, a traditional authoritarian superintendent who didn't like being questioned in the press, and uh, and he fired these people when they sued him, and it went through the Maryland legislature, and there was a lot of debate around it. But strangely, and I followed this this controversy very closely in the Baltimore Sun as it unfolded. And there was you know a couple of dozen or more um, articles about it over the 1970s. The debate stretched over years. And it barely mentioned psychedelics, even though they, this was the, a lot of the work that they were doing. Uh, it was, um, but it was a debate around um, how funds were being administered and maintained, and how uh, employers were being treated in, in certain ways. And and in the in the end, it resulted in Albert Kerlin being removed as as the head of um, the the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, and the administration of that center being transferred uh, from um, the State Department of Mental Hygiene. Um, to the um, University of Maryland, and in that, um, the whole um, organisation was uh, was reorganised, um, and most of the, the psychedelic researchers um, left, and the psychedelic research program was ended. And so, it really existed because Albert. It, it continued through the 1970s because Albert Kurland um, was a was a was a powerful and determined uh, research administrator in the state of Maryland who was able to to sustain it. Uh, and when he was gone, uh, it kind of disappeared. Matt's new book is called The Trials of Psychedelic Therapy, LSD Psychotherapy in America. It's obvious that it contributes to vitally important current events and important debates. It's not only topical, but it's also thought-provoking. Matt, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you very much, Luke. It was great to talk to you.